I'm Bo, and it's just so fun to be here again. And we're starting a new series. Um, I'm going to be here for actually two of the messages in this series, and I'm just so, so excited about it. And um, I was thinking this morning about uh, kind of coming through pandemic and all the things that I could have accomplished. Like I was reading some articles about things people did with their time during lockdown. And my husband and I, we are newlyweds. We got married two years ago in July. And so we had all this time together. I recommend it being a newlywed in pandemic. It's kind of cool. Uh, we had all this time together and we could have like learned to f- speak French. Nope. Um, we could have learned to cook Thai food. We could have gotten in the best physical shape of our lives, also also no. Um, What we did do instead was remodel our house. That's, it's, it's not, in, in retrospect, not maybe our best decision. People warned us, this is going to be really hard. It's really hard to get a hold of things. Do you know how expensive wood is right now? Do you know how hard contractors are to find right now? And we were just young and in love and sure, yeah, we could do it. And so as of this moment, we're several months and many thousands of dollars over budget. And that is okay, actually, because people warned us. We were prepared. We knew it was going to go this way. But what I was not prepared for in any way was the noise. It is a noisy, noisy job. And we are both working from home. And it's just so loud. I feel sometimes like I've got like this jackhammer noise just always living in my brain. In fact, if I'm yelling this morning, just flag me down and say, quiet down. I'm just used to so much noise. And noise is hard. You know, the noise that's happening while the work is being done in our house is making us it hard for us to do the work that will pay for the work that's being done in our house. And so noise, I think, is a big deal. It's a disruptor. All the worrying and worrying, you know, with the external noise, there's just so much happening around us. In fact, right now you live in a noisy, noisy world. You live in the noisiest world that there has ever been, ever in history. We've never had a noisier world. Since night, I spoke to the ladies a couple of weeks ago and I told them since 1986, the amount of information that comes at you every day has increased five times. You now are assaulted by 100,000 words per day. If you're wondering how much that is, that is the amount of 174 newspapers cover to cover. we, We live in this place where information is coming at us and we're getting immersed in the static of it all because now it's not all signal. We're wired up in humanity to be able to respond to signal We're wired up to hear something and then fight or flight. But now it's all, it all seems like signal. It's all coming at the same volume. For instance, I needed to know as a follower of Jesus and a citizen of the United States of America, I needed to know who won the 2020 election. That's signal. I did not need to know every living human's opinion on who won the 2020 election. That's static. And static bogs us down and slows us down and keeps us from hearing the voice of God. And then there's, with all of this external noise and external traffic, there's so much internal noise. Do you know, you think somewhere between 12 and 75,000 thoughts per day. I long to be in the 12,000 category. I am not. I'm someone who throws the average up because I overthink a lot. But there are these thoughts constantly warring for attention inside of us. 
There are thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. Of your 75,000 thoughts a day, 95% of them are negative. 85% of those thoughts are repetition of yesterday and the day before and two weeks ago, Thursday. We just have these automatic thoughts storming the gates of our mind all the time. And I think it, it makes it so hard to hear the voice of God and that's what this whole series is about. How do we hear God in the middle of a noisy world? But beyond that, how do we hear God in the middle of a quiet one? We're gonna look at where God shows up in the wilderness. And I know wilderness is kind of a negative term. I, don't, I haven't ever heard anyone be like, I'm so excited about the wilderness. I just wanna hang out in the wilderness. I don't think the children of Israel felt that way when they were there for 40 years. It might've been cool right at the beginning and then it wasn't anymore. But the wilderness really for our purposes during this series is any place or season of prolonged pain, loneliness, or silence. Any of those times qualify as a wilderness season in our life. And as we started to discuss where this series was headed, there was this big discovery that this is a pattern in the word of God, that people land in the wilderness and God shows up. People land in the wilderness and they experience him in a way that they couldn't have experienced him in the mainstream, on the highway, on the busy road, in the busy street, in the middle of Safeway. People experience God in the wilderness in a different way, in a different and I would say essential way. And so we want to look at the narratives of people in the Bible who experience a wilderness season. And we're going to start at the top. We're going to start with Jesus and his time in the wilderness. So we're going to look at Matthew 4. This account is actually in all four Gospels, the account of Jesus going to the wilderness. And it says, Jesus, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Can you just take a second and pin in your mind the word then? We're just gonna save that little word for later. So Jesus was led to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I mean, as temptations go, that's not a very cool one. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't be very tempted by that. The food, yes. The throw yourself off the building, not so much. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I always love to find the context in a, in a story, especially a story that we've read and heard a lot. And so the context of this story is found in that first word I told you to remember, then. So when is the then? It's when we back up to chapter three, and at the very end of chapter three, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, and then it jumps to verse 15 and says, um, 
Jesus asks to be baptized. And then verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So this moment is the pinnacle of Jesus' success on earth. We know that because he himself defines it when he tells his disciples, I live to do what I see my father do. I live to say what I hear my father say. He's living for the approval of his father. And in this moment, Jesus gets it. He is fully, the human Jesus in this moment is fully endorsed by his father, fully and publicly. And what I love here is that God does not say, this is the savior of the world in whom I am well pleased, or this is the worker of miracles in whom I am well pleased, or this is the feeder of thousands in whom, in whom I am well pleased. He says, this is my son. Without doing a single thing, without making one cool trick happen, without turning anything to anything, Jesus is approved of and hugged and kissed by his dad. And so we know here that the, the love of the father is fully on the son and then he is sent into the wilderness. And so right away we can dispel this notion that if you land in a wilderness season it's because God doesn't love you. Right away we can see that if you land in a wilderness season it might be because God does love you so much. And so he sends his one and only beautiful, perfect, sinless son into the wilderness. And our wilderness, I think, could be made up of a lot of things. It could be made up of physical pain, relationship breakdowns, financial issues, emotional turmoil. Our wilderness could be made of long stretches of disappointment and loneliness. Our wilderness could just be prolonged seasons of not enough. Not enough hope, not enough joy, not enough purpose, not enough. Our wilderness, I think, in the last year has looked like a lot of isolation. There are a lot of ways that wilderness seasons show up in our lives. And I think you can be fully flourishing in certain areas and be experiencing a wilderness season in another one. So there's lots of ways they can look, but there are a couple of things that I think are consistent of every wilderness for every follower of Jesus Christ, and it's this. I believe that every wilderness has distinct challenges and pain points, and every wilderness has distinct opportunities for change and growth and life and hope. Each one holds some kind of potential to make us something coming out that we weren't going in. And I wanna look at three different things that I think the wilderness can do for you. There are a bunch of them, but we're gonna look at three today. The first one is the wilderness frees us from performance and hypocrisy. And we're just a society that's filled with pretenders. And so was in the New Testament, we hear Jesus say, you hypocrites, that word hypocrite in the Greek is, is performer. You hypocrite, you worship me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. Why is our heart far from Jesus when we're physically worshiping him? Because of the watching world, because of the roar of the crowd. And this is one of the places that gets tested in Jesus when he's in the wilderness. Jesus is there, he faces the devil, but he understands that there is only one audience watching that matters. 
It's just him and his father. The crowds aren't watching. The disciples aren't watching. This is a war in his own spirit that is being played out in front of God the Father. This time, I think, prepares Jesus for that moment as he hangs on a cross on a cosmic stage with all of creation watching, but is entirely focused on the vision of his father. That's why I think the saddest words in the whole Bible, maybe in all of literature, are, my God, why have you turned away? Jesus learns the audience is real and watching, and it's my dad. And in the wilderness, I think we learn, if we're willing, to die to the cheap seats. We're willing to um, become authentic in front of God with our pain and our pride and our frustration and our sin and our worries. In the wilderness, where God goes with us, we can live in front of the audience of significance. The second thing is the wilderness reminds us who we are. In my regular life, I have a lot of titles. I am a wife. Uh, when I marry my husband, uh, we have 10 kids between us, so that's a little bit of a workload. It's um, <laughs> a title. Uh, I'm a wife. I'm a mom. I'm a pastor. I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a lot of little titles. I could put some stuff on a business card and be like, okay, here's Bo Stern. But really, I could lose all those things. None of them are assured to me. None of those are promised to me. And I just this year, for the first time, read uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And it was profoundly moving for me. I read it because of Viktor Frankl's work around the psychology of growth through suffering. But the first half of the book, and I actually didn't realize this going in, or I probably would have, I would have avoided the book, but the first half of the book is his experience in a Nazi death camp where he lost his pregnant wife, both his parents and his siblings. And reading about the way <clears throat> regular people like you and me, one day, in almost a day's time, lose their home, their freedom, their family, their dignity, their life's work, their children, everything. Most of them, their lives, really moved something in me. It marked me, and I would find myself like waking up in the morning saying, I could lose it all, and what would I have? And the answer is, I would have three things if I lost everything else. If it's just me and a death camp, I get to keep three things, and so do you. We all have three things that we can take to the bank from before we're born till after the grave. And they are this, I am seen, I am known, and I am unconditionally loved. Whether I'm a wife, whether I'm a mom, whether I'm a pastor, if it all falls apart tomorrow, I have these three things and you can't take them from me. And neither can the wilderness. And in fact, the wilderness reminds me that this is what I possess. This is who I am. I am seen, I am known, I am loved unconditionally. David says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heavens, you're there. If I go down to hell, you're there. 
this audience, this, this God always seeing us and knowing us and watching us. And he goes on in Psalm 139 to say, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. Your thoughts toward me are precious. Even when I make my own bed in hell, you are there. And I think we have this thing we kind of throw around in Christendom. We say somebody fell away from God. And I don't really see it being biblical. To me, it looks like we can easily fall away from our awareness of God, but we cannot fall away from the presence of God. It seems to hover everywhere. This morning we sang, when we, when we pray, the ground of hell begins to shake. How come? Because God follows us everywhere. And so knowing that we are seen and known and loved unconditionally, helps us die to a lot of other ladders and a lot of other labels. When, when I, I mentioned it when we read this scripture, the devil gives him this cool temptation, I'm going to tempt you with bread because you're really hungry, and I'm going to tempt, tempt you with the adoration of the crowd. Both those things might work on me, but the weird one is I would like to tempt you to throw yourself off a building, how about that? That's, that's a dumb idea. That's not a great temptation. But then Jesus responds, you don't test God. What is the test here? The test is, does he really love you? He'll save you, right? I mean, you just heard him say, he's my beloved son. I'm really pleased with him. Does he love you? And this is the question that comes full force in almost every wilderness season that I've been in. What is a nice girl like you doing in a wilderness like this? This is not cool. Why would God send you here? But the wilderness, if we'll let it, is a place where we can repeat, like I'm sure Jesus did, I am his child. He is pleased with me. I'm telling you, even if your own mistake led you to the wilderness, this is a moment to reiterate to your own heart, there are three things that I am. I am seen, I am known, and I am loved unconditionally. I am seen, I am known, I am loved. The third thing that happens in the wilderness is that it quiets the traffic of the world so we can hear God. Because honestly, the wilderness is very quiet because usually nobody wants to be there with you. Nobody wants to join you in your profound pain. There are people who will show up and bring mac and cheese, but mostly you're alone in your wilderness season. Mostly it's yours to duke out, you know? And so when you're there, it gets quiet, but God goes with you to the hard places. But God goes with you into the wild wilderness. When the traffic of the world is quieted, we have a front row seat to the ways and the words of God. The older I get, the more I believe that hearing God is the prize. Hearing God is the thing. It's, it's the whole point. Hearing God. I think because <clears throat> it reminds us of the things that are most important of us. It's relationship. I mentioned that I got married two years ago and I have the marriage license to prove it. But I don't know where it actually is because it's frankly not that important to me. I'm pretty sure we got one. <laughs> but it's not that important to me even though this is the only evidence that the state has 
that I got married, but the evidence that I'm married is my relationship. And so I, this fall, when my speaking schedule started up again, I went and did a, a conference out in Cannon Beach. And on my way home, I was just excited to get home. And I had had a great time, but that I'm a raging introvert. And so it's always just challenging to me, always to be with lots of people for extended periods of time. So I was driving home, and I was so excited to get home. And I got home, and my husband's car was in the driveway. I was like, oh, my husband's home. That's the evidence that he's home. And I was so excited. And then I walked in the house, and there was music playing, and candles were lit, and there was dinner cooking on the stove. I'm so sorry, husband for doing this to you this morning, um, but that's what he did. And so um, I walked in and I see all of that and I realized this is the evidence that he knows me. This is the evidence that he knows after a long weekend, I don't want a house full of people. I don't want 10 kids over for dinner. I don't want loud music. I just want a little something going on. This is, he knows me and he knows I'm always hungry. So he knows, but it wouldn't matter much if he did all of that and then said, you know what, I'm going to go watch TV while you eat this. That's not what I want. I want to sit down with him around the table and tell him about my weekend and tell him who I met and tell him what happened and I want to hear about his. That's relationship, being seen, known, and loved. That's what I want. That's, I think, what we all want in human relationships, which will always fall short, but the wilderness proves to us that we can have it in one relationship. And so the hearing comes in that quiet place, around a table, around a table where I can hear from God. I think it's so sad what communion sometimes becomes, at least in my life. There are times when, you know, the tray passes and I pop the cracker in my mouth and I swallow the juice and pass it on and I'm thinking about other things. I don't think that's what communion was meant to be. In fact, of all the symbols that Jesus could have chosen to say, this is how I want you to remember me. He could have chosen, I want you to give money. I want you to help someone. I want you to crawl on your knees up the steps of the church. Here's the way you're supposed to remember. No, he chose a meal. I want you to gather around a table. I want you to join in conversation. I want you to be there in that moment of intimacy and shared words and hearts and fears and conversation. That's what communion should be. That If that's what marriage should be, that's what communion should be. That's our relationship with the God who goes with us to the quiet places. It's communion. It's meal. In it, we hear him. Because without conversation, I'm telling you what, I don't have a marriage. I don't. I have a license, but not a marriage. And so the wilderness brings us back to understanding and hearing him. The wilderness is filled with doubts about who God is. I know that, and I'm not trying to um, make light of that. It's painful, and it's hard. And that's the place where I think we're really questioned, and we, we ask the big questions. But it also can be the very place those doubts are put to rest. In this, Jesus models the wilderness as a discipleship training school. I believe that Jesus himself is being discipled in the wilderness. The human part of Jesus is learning what it means to follow God and trust him. The human part of Jesus is in the wilderness, I think, constantly saying, I surrender all. I think sometimes the wilderness finds us. In fact, I know it does. Sometimes the wilderness chases us down and we're in it before we know it. 
and you don't have a choice, you don't have a say, you land in a lonely place filled with long nights and hard days, and sometimes those spaces aren't entirely quiet, sometimes they also have the voice of the enemy, the voice of doubt. I think in every wilderness, true wilderness that I've experienced, I've heard the voice of God, but I've also heard the voice of the enemy. In 2009, my life was going pretty great. I um, had, in 2007, I had decided I am going to wake up every morning before sunrise. And I'm just going to tell you, tons of failure led to that decision, so don't admire it. But I just decided I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to chase down the presence of God. And it had opened up uh, something in my life that I can only describe as like a spring of water that was just so wonderful. And, and I had a strong husband and cute kids and a job I loved and in a city I loved. And, and it was just beautiful. Those times were so alive with his presence when I would sneak down to this little makeshift prayer room I had formed in our house. And then one morning I woke up. I don't know why. I don't understand what happened, but I woke up and my first thought was, how could you have been so stupid? How could you have believed all of this nonsense? You're crazy and you get paid to be crazy. And I was devastated. It was like, because I have, I have been a believer in Jesus since I was five years old. I had a very real salvation experience at five years old. And it's what I have believed all my life up until that moment. And when I felt it slipping away, it was devastating and I just went back down to that little prayer room and I fell on the floor and I cried and I just said, what do I have if I don't have this? What even is left if I don't have who I think God is to me? And every morning I went back and every morning I cried it out and every morning I just thought, what, what, who will care for my kids? Who takes care of me? Who do, I, who do I trust with the systems of the world? Who do I trust when I fly on an airplane and I'm worried I'm gonna crash? What do I have if I don't have God? And as mysteriously and suddenly as it came, I woke up on the seventh day and it was gone. It's gone. I don't know why. I don't know what caused it. I don't know any of the things. But I do know it was just a few months later that um, I sat in a hospital room with my husband, who I had been married to at that point, time for 25 years and heard a doctor say you have ALS and five years to live and I know that from that moment we launched into five years of the four years of the hardest battle that I've ever ever fought and one of the deepest wilderness seasons that I've ever lived through and through that time even though that external shaking was so real and so profound I never budged an inch on who God was. I just never did. And I feel like in 2009, God met me in this crazy out of the blue wilderness to help me wrestle through doubts he knew I, couldn't, I wouldn't have the energy for when I would face him in a very real, very external, very circumstance-driven wilderness. And I'm so thankful for that time. Sometimes the wilderness places find you, not because God hates you or because he's testing you, but because life is hard and unfair. And we are small humans who face big issues like sickness and abandonment and rejection and heartache. 
I don't think God creates every wilderness, not for a minute do I think that, but I do know he shows up in them, and I do know he uses every single one. Sometimes the wilderness finds you, but sometimes you can find the wilderness. You can choose the wilderness. Um, Jesus did. In Luke 15, it says, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus found places of loneliness and isolation and quiet so that he could do what? We don't know because we weren't there. All I know is that those places are profoundly important. When we're willing to turn off the noise of the world, step away from the demands, step away from all the other labels we wear, and just get in front of him. Just get in front of his goodness. A few months after my husband died in 2015, I found myself just immersed in grief. And reeling with this idea of what am I going to do next? I'm a single mom and, and uh, just I don't know what's coming and I've, I'm feeling a lot of things. And I love to run trails. I'm, I live in Bend part-time and I love to run trails and, and I do it because it makes me feel better emotionally. And yet then at, during this season when I would run, I would have to put loud music on in my ears because I just couldn't handle the worrying and my thoughts. I just was not at peace. And so at one point I was like, okay, all I can do right now is, is dive into this. I am going to choose the wilderness. And I, I got alone with my spiral notebook and my Bible. And I said, Jesus, show me what's happening in my life. I don't want to leave this place until you show me. I need to know what's happening. And I started writing out all the grief I was feeling, just everything I was feeling. And I did it and I stayed and I listened. And then I went back to that the next day and I went back to it the next day. And I don't know why seven days is significant in my life, but on the seventh day, I took a highlighter and I highlighted everything that was coming up over and over again in my, in my grief. And when I looked at it with the things that were repetitive, I saw, yes, there's sorrow. I am dealing with sorrow and that's okay because sorrow isn't sin and sorrow goes with you. You don't have to get over it. It's going to live with me for a long time, sorrow. And I can't cure sorrow, but some of it was shame for the way that I, there was a a one moment when I was taking care of my husband, I was his full-time caregiver and there was a moment that I had said something that I really, really regret. And um, he forgave me graciously. And, but after he died, that one comment came back and back and back and back. In fact, I'll tell you this little secret. He was a well-loved man. There were a thousand people at his funeral. And when I took the stage to speak, they graciously gave me a standing ovation. And the whole time I was thinking, if they knew what I had said to him, they wouldn't. And so it was something that was going over and over and over in my mind. And I saw it and I was like, "Uh, it's not that my grief is too heavy. It's that my shame is too heavy. And we weren't meant to carry shame. And so I got a word bullet 
a one sentence line that I shot into that shame every time it came back. Every time I, and it was like happening 20 times a day. I would think of this thing, laying in my bed at night, trying to sleep, running the river trail. And every time it came back to me, I would say, I cared for my husband imperfectly, but faithfully for 30 years. I made big mistakes, but neither he nor Jesus remembers them. And I said it over and over and over and over and over and over until the shame let go. And it's that time in that wilderness that I chose being willing to look at the muck in my own life that got me free of it. And so don't be afraid to choose the wilderness. Don't be afraid. It beats all to pieces just trying to drown out the roar of your own doubts or the roar of your own confusion or your own failure or your own sin or your own worry. Instead of that, quiet yourself. Pick a wilderness time. It doesn't have to be seven days. It could just be that every day this week, when you're even maybe before your eyes open in the morning, if your first thought is, Jesus, I'm listening. What do you want to say? Just choose that quiet time before all of the world starts to, to storm the gates and come in and steal your faith. Jesus, I'm listening. And what if you don't hear anything the first day? Ask tomorrow and ask the next day and keep asking because he is God. He will speak to you. He will. I want to finish up with this scripture. In fact, would you stand with me? I love to stand when we read the word of God. I think it's good. And I just want to speak this scripture over you. It's from Psalm 46, and it speaks so much to this deal, this, this, this uh, way that God meets us in the noise of the world. And I'd love for you to just close your eyes and let this sink into the soil of your soul. God is a safe place to hide, ready to help when we need him. We stand fearless at the cliff edge of doom, courageous in sea storm and earthquake, before the rush and roar of oceans, the tremors that shift mountains. Attention, see the marvels of God. He plants flowers and trees all over the earth, bans war from pole to pole, breaks all the weapons across his knee. Step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. Jesus, we want to be willing this week to silence the noise that keeps coming at us, at us, at us. And we want to be willing to hear your still small voice in the midst of it. So I ask that you would give us ears that are ready to hear your voice and, the, and eyes that are peeled, looking for a wilderness season that will make us more like you, more in love with you, more certain of you, and more like you. We love you and we worship you. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here today. I hope you have the best week ever.